0: The National Archives podcast series, Locality, Land and Livelihood, Sources for Early Local History, presented by Sean Cunningham and James Ross. Just to explain what we're going to do today, Sean and I are going to focus on two slightly different areas. I'm going to concentrate on what are, to all intents and purposes, private records, which are now held by the National Archives. So those that were created by landowners, private landowners, and indeed the crown for their own land but records created by landowners for their own use, and private records which were used during litigation, for instance, to prove ownership, but again that have ended up in Crown hands here. Sean's going to look at the more formal sources of government, the the public records, if you like, which can be used to inform the study of a locality, such as the records of royal taxation, transactions completed in the courts of the realm, or inquisitions post-mortem. This is not necessarily a distinction that all researchers might need to make, though the reason the record was created does, of course, make a difference as the information it contains, and um, it can affect how you might actually search for a public record or a private record. The National Archives has hundreds of thousands of records, possibly even millions of records, relating to property. We hold them for a variety of reasons. Property came into the possession of the Crown due to forfeiture, inheritance or lack of heirs. And when such property came into crown hands, records relating to it often came too. Property was often the subject of litigation and documents were used in courts to prove title and they were often left there, um, left with the, the, the courts. And there's also um, a very common practice that documents relating to, the property, to a particular property were enrolled in court records to prove ownership um, at the time of a sale, for instance. Lastly, of course, the Crown itself owned a huge amount of land and generated accounts and other documentations like a private landowner for profit, for loss, that kind of thing, for its own purposes. So these are the basic reasons why we hold a lot of private, effectively private, records. To give some concrete examples of the sort of records that the National Archives holds, I'm going to focus where the records exist on one particular place today, which is Castle Rising in Norfolk. The manor came into Crown hands by purchase in the 1330s and stayed there till about the 1540s when Henry VIII exchanged it for other properties with Thomas Howard, Duke of Norfolk. And the manor has effectively remained with the Dukes of Norfolk um, ever since, despite the occasional execution and forfeiture of various members of that particular noble family. So, I'm going to start and talking about manorial records. The basic unit of local administration for much of the period before, say, 1800, was the manor. There are hundreds and thousands of manors over, over the course of uh, over England. They're, they vary wildly in size, but they are the basic unit of local administration. Typical documents created in the medieval and the early modern periods at manorial level for the landowner were ministers' and receivers' accounts, primarily financial. You have rentals and surveys to investigate what precisely was due to the, the landowner or, or what land precisely he held. And you also have court rolls which for the for the manorial court. Ministers' and receivers' accounts to start with. Just to explain the terminology a little bit, a minister tends to refer to a local official like a bailiff or a reeve responsible for one manor uh, or the profits for one manor. A receiver tends to be a, an official of, uh, of the landowner's administration taking in money from a number of manors. So a, a minister's account will tend to refer to a single manor, a receiver's account will relate to a group of manors where the landowner is a a wealthy one, and most of them were. The National Archives holds ministers and receivers accounts from about the mid-13th century onwards. They're primarily concerned with land use, with administration, and particularly with profit and loss. They're not normally concerned with individual tenants that much, though the most prominent may well be mentioned. They are mainly in two series here, SC6 and DL29. I've been mentioning a number of DL series. That's Duchy of Lancaster, which is one of the huge inheritances that came to the Crown in 1399 and whose properties extend all over England. Both these series, SC6 and DL29, are generally searchable on the online catalogue by the place name, though beware variant spellings of particular places. And I will also at this point mention there are a number of accounts of royal officials who took control of possessions of the dissolved monasteries in the mid sixteenth century. And those particular properties, if you know, if you're looking at a particular place that was a monastic property, can be searched in the list of the lands of dissolved religious houses, which is in the National Archives Public Record Office's list and index series. Two images on the screen are of a receiver's account or a bailiff's account of Castle Rising covering Michaelmas 1407 to 1408. Such accounts for all all places tend to follow a standard pattern, though the types of income and expenditure obviously vary a little bit between places. But most such accounts will be um, split into a profit section and expenses section. Profit section likely to include things like arrears from the previous account, profits from the sale of wood or crops or livestock, cash rents and items such as the profits from manorial courts. The expenses section will normally have cash expenditure on the, for the upkeep of buildings, for the purchase of particular items like um, extra livestock, or expenses such as wages for the various manorial officials. These types of documents will therefore tell you who owned and who actually ran the manor, will give some insight into the administration of the place in question, some information on land use, almost any possible source of profit, and may, as I say, mention more prominent locals, but by no means all of them. Rentals and surveys are the second type of manorial document I wanted to discuss. A rental is a list of tenants and their rents owed to the manorial lord, or occasionally the customs by which particular tenants held their property, so it may not be a cash rent necessarily. A survey is a normally written description of the manor, its boundaries, occasionally containing a map, though that's rare before 1600, and a number of documents are both rentals and surveys at the same time. They're scattered between a number of record series in the National Archives. Some of these series are certainly name-searchable on the catalogue, on the online catalogue, and that's the best place to start. But the only absolutely comprehensive index is the list of rentals and surveys, which is, again, the Public record Office's list and index is 25. To give you an example of these kind of documents, and again for Castle Rising, there's a very detailed survey and rental for Castle Rising dating from 1589 after the Howard family had yet again forfeited their lands for rebellion. It's a very, very detailed document, and this particular page um, is the list of the major tenants and the rents that they owed to the, the lord at this time, who, as I say, is, is temporarily the crown, Top line there is is for the mayor and burgesses of the actual uh, of the town itself of Castle Rising, but that's the rental side of it. To give you an example of the survey side, this is a written description of the bounds of the chase of Castle Rising or the hunting grounds. gives a huge amount of topographical detail with particular. Field names and uh, quite a detailed description of how the, the landscape actually ha- looked at that time. So, for people interested in local history, this, this can be a very valuable source. The the clerk who wrote this very detailed description um, of Castle Rising also had a habit of doing grotesques as capital letters, and you can see a couple of examples there. They're actually very detailed and really quite quite impressive, if occasionally slightly off-putting. The third source of manorial records I wanted to discuss was the manorial court. They are, or they can be, a problematic source. They're invariably in Latin, certainly before 1688. They tend to be highly abbreviated and difficult to read. They're one of my least favourite sources to use, actually, for that reason. But they contain a wealth of information about the locality, about people and places. And especially about the elements of society that are not normally covered in other sources. That's because by about 1200 at the um, the latest, the Manorial Court is the lowest level of the judicial system. There is a myriad of other courts standing above it, offering better justice um, for, for more serious crimes, whereas the Manorial Court deals with only the uh, the least serious, if you like. So the people who end up in the manorial court are the lowest level of society that you won't find in the records of the Westminster court as a general rule because they won't have been able to afford to, to have gone to, that, to Westminster or, or gone through the processes. So it can, they can be very detailed on, on people you won't be able, able to find otherwise. Most pre-1700 court rolls in the National Archives are in two series, SC2 and DL30, both series are searchable by name, by the name of the manor or the place, on the catalogue. Though, as usual, beware of variant spellings. Some are in other record series, however, and for certainty, there are a couple of publications: the Listen Index of Court Rolls, and there's a Union Place Name Index to Court Rolls, which is available in the map room here at Q. Again, an example of a court roll. This one actually dates from. 1349, at the height of the Black Death, and this particular example in DL 30 are court rolls to the manors of High Easter and Great Waltham in Essex. I've highlighted a section here, and you may be able to make out the, um, the repetition of the two Latin words post mortem again and again as senior tenants expire from bubonic plague. In these five lines I've picked up, there are at least six. Examples the words "postmortem," mortem so you can see the level of mortality that the Black Death was having at that time. The type of documents I've just been describing are administrative documents for the landowners. They're concerned with organisation and with profit and loss. The other type of documents which survive in abundance are property transactions, sales, leases and all sorts of things. And these tend to be described as deeds, as a catch-all term. The National Archives holds deeds from at least the 12th century, certainly through to the 20th, and in their millions. Private deeds came into crown hands when it acquired property through purchase or forfeiture or other forms of a sheet, or were produced as evidence in lawsuits. These tend to be in their original state. Many still have seals attached. And the other type of deeds we hold are from the current practice, what was current practice up to the 19th century, which was to enrol documents in the central court as a way of recording ownership. Um, So there's lots of copies of documents written up onto the great chancery rolls and and legal rolls by clerks. So they're not in their original state, but they they contain the same type of information. Medieval and early modern deeds will remain in Latin really quite late, though English and French are also used at various periods. There's a huge variety of types of documentation covering all sorts of transactions, and they can sometimes be legally quite complex. They're also quite complex to locate for individual items. Finding a place of transaction is not easy. There are deeds in at least 50 National archive series due to the many organs of government that were interested in who owned what, and there's certainly no one cumulative finding aid. As is often the case, the best place to start is a search on the online catalogue. There are a number of series that are wholly or partly searchable there. The DL series, series among the exchequer, the chancery, and one two others. There is also the published calendar of ancient deeds, which runs to six volumes, but is only a fraction of our holdings. It's available in any good research library. And there are at least 25 manuscript finding aids in the map room under those under various headings. So, as I say, there's a lot of different places to look. The type of information a deed will contain, a typical one if there's such a thing exists, will have the name of the person who's selling or granting the land, the persons who acquired the property, the terms on which they did so, is at least for 10 years, 20 years, as a sale, um, an emphyfment. Probably we'll mention the amount of money changing hands, though not always. It will give you a date, it will give you witnesses uh, on a number of occasions. And it should also give quite a lot of details about the particular property or place in question. It can sometimes supply a great deal of topographical information, depending a bit on, on the property actually changing hands. This is um, an example from the mid 16th century in English of land changing hands. You can see it's actually probably a draft rather than a, a formal document, given how messy it is. And Containing the same kind of information but in a much more formal form, this doc- the second document dates from about 150 years earlier. It's in Latin and it's a grant of land in burnham Norton in Norfolk. But you can see the three seals attached giving evidence that this was a, a formal document. I've made the distinction between enrolment and, and private deeds. There's no com- there was no compulsory central registration of transactions of the land until it's the very late 19th century. But many purchasers of lands earlier chose to register their title um, with using the records of the courts of law. Now, you could do that one of several ways. You could have a fictitious legal dispute, it's known as a collusive action, which means the, the case is written up on the, on, the, on the court rolls, although you're not actually having a legal suit. You could also just pay to have this written up as part of the, the records of a particular court. problem is there's a number of courts. Chancery was particularly popular, and the close rolls in C54 contain hundreds of thousands of private documents. But you might find them in the records of the Court of Common Pleas, the Court of King's Bench, various exchequer series, particularly the memoranda rolls. Um, you might find for the Palatinates of Chester, Durham, and Lancaster, there are separate series where you may well find a lot of private deeds enrolled among them. And to illustrate what I mean by enrolled, it is written up on a very large roll. That's a close roll from the mid-16th century. There are so many possible record series I've just mentioned that I'm not going to go into any detail about how to find them. There's a very good research guide on our website on land conveyance, enrolments of deeds and registration of title, which is a good starting point. As I say, that's available via our website. Brief word on maps, there's no systematic mapping of English land until the 19th century. While we hold many maps dating from before 1832, they do tend, they're not always, to be of royal property. For instance, we have a number for Dover Castle, a you know, crown, crown um, fortress for many centuries. Therefore, maps before 1688 are relatively rare among the National Archives collections, probably numbering hundreds rather than thousands, and are often associated with legal cases although by the end of, uh, of the early modern period, private landowners were occasionally drawing up maps of their properties, along with written surveys. Best ways to search is on the online catalogue, again, by, by place name, or there's a published volume of maps of the British Isles, of which there are multiple copies in the reading rooms. This is a map from 1533 for Rothwell Park in Yorkshire. It shows, for instance, the fields in the particular in, in, in Rothwell, the acreage... Fences, gates, and and some, and some extent land use. It was um, created by the administration of Lord Darcy, who was then the landowner, but the map and the property was seized by the Crown after Lord Darcy forfeited for participating in the Pilgrimage of Grace against Henry VIII. Very few places in England will have all these types of private um, documentation I've covered today, all the manorial roles or private deeds. Very, very few places will have all of them. For instance, Castle Rising, which I've been using as a case study today, has excellent documentation for rentals and surveys, accounts, but has very few property deeds. I can find only one court role and no maps in the National Archives collections. For very obvious reasons, there are many other repositories which hold masses of property transactions and other, and other property records. It's certainly worth trying global search for our website or access to archives. The other useful source for, min- for material held at the National Archives and elsewhere of a manorial nature, though less often property transactions and not title deeds, is the manorial documents register, part of which is available online, part of which is available on microfilm, depending on which county you're interested in. Even if no private documentation survives, there are many possibilities among the public records for sources on a particular place and, uh, or, or a particular person.
1: But for that, I shall hand you over
0: to my colleague, Sean.
1: Thank you, James. Well, as James has mentioned... There's all sorts of records. Virtually every record could probably be defined as having some connection with local history that we hold here at the National Archives. So, pretty much all Crown records have some possibility for local historians, but as was mentioned, they're very difficult to navigate in some cases. The enrollments can be used to change, to, to track ownership or stewardship, so changes in people who have influences in local places. The pleadings in the central courts, especially the equity courts, where a lot of Personal statements were made under oath, depositions. These often give you very interesting snapshots of what local life was like at the time disputes were in process. The difficulty is that indexing these records is inconsistent, it's been done by different groups over three or four hundred years, basically. And you're talking to two of the uh, medieval team today, so we've got an enormous job to try and make more sense of this and to get more of it online. But the bottom line, literally, for, for local records in the National Archives is the Doomsday Book. I'm going to talk a little bit about that because that's the basis upon which all crown land holding developed after William the Conqueror took over. So the Doomsday Book is a survey, a detailed survey and valuation of all the land and related resources held by the King in the late 11th century. William I conquered Anglo-Saxon England in 1066 but the threat of invasion, he needed to know what his resources were, what kind of army he could gather, and basically how much money he could squeeze out of the country. So at Christmas 1085, he decided to commission a survey uh, to investigate these resources and basically define who owned what, how much it was worth, and how much he could get from it. So there's William from the Bayer Tapestry. So it's relative between the two dates. You can get the value of Anglo-Saxon holdings and then the value of Norman holdings, so for historians of this century it's very interesting to see what the Normans did to the same land after they'd taken over. And it connects manors and estates and landholders. It also is pretty much a basis for military service. So as a king who's taken the throne by force and has still got to conquer the north, then raising an army and, and putting a good army out it was the main reason for collecting this information. And it also included the other lands that the Normans had managed to get their hands on as they conquered the whole of England and Wales after 1066. So the basic description of what happened with Doomsday. There were seven circuits, which probably became the basis of a lot of the the legal circuits that the justices rode in later times. And tenants-in-chief who held directly from the Crown sent in lists of manors that they held. And obviously it was called Doomsday because it was so comprehensive, and everyone who was living at the time felt it was like a day of judgment, having to make lists of everything they owned and have it valued. So special courts would be made up, half of them would be English, a jurors, half of them would be French, and they'd be summoned from all over the locality and would have to give this information under oath about who owed what and how it was worth, how much it was worth. So questions of ownership, the value of plough teams, how many slaves were on a manor, what the woodland pasture and mills were worth, so you get a good snapshot of the very early origins of, of English places. As I mentioned before, it shows the changes in what happened to the land and how it was worked, and also how its value would decline, perhaps because of the deaths of tenants and people who worked the land, or because of waste and disease cause of warfare, and it also breaks the country down into circuits and counties, which makes it easier to manage. Now there are two surveys. There's the Little Doomsday and Great Doomsday that we hold. There's also the Exon Doomsday, which is in Exeter Cathedral, which deals with the lands in the southwest. And the Great Doomsday covers most of England except the North and London, Bristol and Winchester. So it's by no means the whole country, but it's still a very great document. In fact, it is the nation's number one treasure, as we all know. So it covers 37 counties and about 13,500 places. It names all the landholders in each county, the manors they held, their value, and subtenants. Included there are 112 towns or boroughs and their customs, including the markets and fairs they held, 48 castles, 2,000 parish churches, 6,000 mills, surprisingly 45 vineyards, lots of woodland, fisheries, mints, and other industry. So it's not just about arable land. It also shows the distinction between free men and slaves and how many of these people were working on each manor. And people won't be surprised to know that about 300 major landholders held almost all of the land, much like today. So the king held about 17% directly, the church had an even greater share, and then lay tenants and basically 12 chief lords held a quarter of the land and there was more pigs listed than women. And this is just a visual representation of that, with the king on the left and the slaves, probably be people like me, <laughs> on the right, and it's a very small hierarchy that's ruling the country. The good news is that it's now online at the National Archives on the Documents Online website, with good full-colour images, and then a, a translation which matches the layout of the original so you can search on manor names and individual names. So it's it's fully opened now to, to internet use, which is the first time certainly that it's really been possible to exploit Doomsday for its full potential. So because Doomsday was a an assessment of resources, I'm going to move on to taxation, which is a sort of the direct descendant, as it were, of the value of people's holdings. And because our ancestors were reluctant to pay tax, resisted paying tax, and the crown was so keen to milk what it could from its population. There's a huge collection of, of taxation records before 1700 here at the National Archives. And as you might expect, this collection proves a lot of detail on settlements and towns and the growth of local population, and also how the wealth of particular areas has changed between taxes and over about five or 600 years of record keeping. So these records are kept in series E179, which is an artificial collection of exchequer material brought together because it principally relates to taxation. But the the accounting documents and the process of actually gathering the money and how that's recorded are elsewhere in the collection at the National Archives. But taxation records can't be used as a version of the census before 1700. Most taxes had thresholds based on wealth in lands or goods, below which people would not have to pay. Although quite often there would be certificates of, of the poorest people, exemption certificates drawn up. So, in some cases, if you're very lucky, there's a full range of records surviving. The origins of tax obviously go back earlier than the Doomsday Book, back to when the English tried to pay off the Danes in 911 and introduced a, a taxation in the southern half of England, which wasn't ruled by the Danes. And then various kings have, have reworked how this original taxation was raised, So Richard I had a tax based on the hides of land. Other taxes called scutages, linked taxation to military service, although obviously this would become a cash equivalent rather than requiring people to actually ride to war. And medieval monarchs could continue to demand feudal taxes from their chief tenants for the marriage of a royal daughter or such things as that, which were called feudal aids, and these have been compiled into books that researchers have used for a long time. But the basic and the longest-running sequence we have, certainly in medieval and early modern taxation, are the fractional taxes, the 15th and tenths, which were all based on a, an assessment settled, which settled in around the 1320s, which basically listed all of the manners and what they'd raised for that tax, and then this was copied out over the preceding of the following twen- uh, two centuries, and you get a fairly fixed yield from this tax. But it's the Tudors who start to play around a lot more with individual subsidies and thinking of new ways to to tax people and get more interesting taxes such as forced loans, free gifts, in inverted commas, (laughs) and all sorts of things which um, created new thresholds and therefore created new documents, because the lower the threshold, the more names will be on the assessments. So certainly for the taxations in the 1520s and 1540s, they're much fuller in terms of the population who's recorded on the record. Here at the National Archives, we have one of our best databases that has been compiled for the last decade or so, which is the E179 database of taxation records. And this is searchable by place name, tax type, and date ranges. And you can search for documents which just list individuals rather than all of the accounting processing documents which also survive. So it lists the places in order as they appear on the actual documents. And all of the the lay taxes are now listed, including the famous poll taxes that sparked off the Peasants' Revolt. And Charles II repeated these, and all of the hearth taxes as well in the 1660s, 70s, and 80s. And the project is still ongoing, listing taxation on the clergy, which is being run by the University of York, which is finishing this year. But it's hoped it can be extended. So this is an, an enormous resource. Probably the data will eventually go into the catalogue because we're trying to make the catalogue the single access point for all of this information eventually. But obviously this has been growing for 10 years so it's pretty huge and it needs quite a lot of work to convert it. But that's, that's the search page so you would put your place in the first bar and build up your search criteria and hopefully you'll get a, a list of that place as it appears in the manuscript along with some information about the document and the type of tax that it's recording. So moving on, I mentioned tenants-in-chief a couple of times, and another key source that we have in great abundance are inquisitions post-mortem. So what are inquisitions post-mortem? Well, they're very useful, first of all, because they relate, relate to landholding and heirship and inheritance. So they reveal some connections between generations, but a great deal also about how land was held, what type of use land had, and How it was worked between about 1216 and about 1650. And our collection here covers most of England, parts of Wales, parts of Ireland where English landholders had land, and even parts of France where English lands were were held before 1453, and certainly in Calais up to 1558. Much as like the Doomsday Book, kings needed to know what their resources were. And for those who held land directly from the crown, the king could exact all sorts of fees and taxes. Um, when a tenant-in-chief died, he would instruct people to hold an inquiry, inquiry an inquest, into what, where the lands were so they could assess the value, work out the next heir, what age they were. If they were underage, the crown would obviously take over managing these lands until they were of age, and then the financial rights that were due to the crown as a result. The inquests were held by local officials called eschitas, who were crown officers concerned with crown revenues from feudal tenures. And the chancery inquisitions we have will list local jurors who used their local knowledge to estimate the value of the lands and actually describe the landholding itself called called an extent, which can be very useful as a verbal description for how places were at these particular milestones when tenants-in-chief died. A wife was entitled to one-third of her husband's lands after his death, so when Dower was assigned to widows, again, this is an important uh, assessment of what female landholding was in this period, and it also includes proofs of age, where the jury would go through all sorts of strange stories about how they remember how old the heir was, um, because they they fell off the horse and broke their leg on the day that he was born, and all of this, so you get quite strange recollections which verge into sort of manorial folklore, uh, which are very useful for for that kind of research. Other manors were held by service called Grand Sargenties, which were basically service in kind, and again there's some very strange stories of how people held held manors, such as um, holding the king's head on board a ship while sailing from Dover, greeting the king on the manors bridge with two white capons, carrying a white wand before the king at Christmas, but only if he was in Lincolnshire. And another one was um, a woman f- from who was marshal of the harlots of Henry IV's household, who also had the right to dismember evildoers when they were condemned. I presume that was a service in kind, as she didn't actually go along with a big axe. Another reds were nominal, such as red roses at Midsummer, and you'll see lists of, of manners held for hawks, horseshoes, cloves, other spices, spurs, even wax. So a very strange snapshot of how landholding existed in the past. And some of this actually does merge into local traditions and folklore. So the records held are in two main series. There's exchequer versions and chancery versions. The ones in the exchequer are in better condition, but they don't include the jury names nor the seals of the people involved. And after 1540, the court of wards, and deliveries would also receive a copy of the Inquisition if the heir was under age. And these records now exist in series Ward seven. Now published calendars do exist for the period twelve sixteen to about fourteen forty now, as a project just finished at Cambridge University, which has been calendaring. And calendars already existed for Henry the Seventh's reign, fourteen eighty five to fifteen oh nine. So the Cambridge project is filling in some of the gaps, but funding has, has just finished and there's plans to, um, to continue this in a slightly different format. And here at the National Archives we've been creating catalogue entries based on these published calendars, and we've filled in the gaps from 1413 to 85, and we've been doing a bit of work on Henry VII to fill that gap, but basically there's a, a whole chunk of Henry VIII through to 1649 for which the catalogue holds very basic details of county and landholder but not a great deal about what the land was. Most of these records will be in, well, they will all be in Latin, but because they're fairly formulaic, I thought I would just show you a little bit about how they're arranged. They always start with the detail of the dead tenant-in-chief and the county in which the inquest is being held and the date and place it was sitting. And this could be in any combination, but the important factor is to identify the tenant-in-chief, the estate and the date, and this will always be in the first few lines of the document in this case it's land held by the Earl of Oxford in the County of Kent so the dates are often in extended format by Saints Day uh, and then by regnal year so you have to convert that using a book of dates in this case it turns out to be Friday the 6th of October 1296 the next section will be the names of the jurors who actually assessed the land and its value so again this will be just a long list of names and you can normally see the point where you're going to get different information because you'll see this "Who swear upon their oaths," um, which heralds a different set of text. So this is where you get a longer section which will list what was held in the manor by this person who's died. And you can see in this case you get um, a list of dovecoats, the value of that particular group of or part of the property, the rents that were due and some idea of the animals that were on the manor, so cockerels and hens listed here with their value, and then an assessment of the land itself, including its size. So if you can use other records to get a visual idea of the extent of this manor, it's quite easy to sort of put this into its local context by using national archives and other records. And finally at the end, you get the names of the heir of the manor and his or her age, and a confirmation that the jurors have sealed the document as a proof of the truth of their statement. And normally you'll get a valuation right at the end, and in this case the value of the manor is £30, 14 shillings and 5.5 and pence. As James mentioned, legal fictions and the use of the central courts to get properties enrolled. The final um, group of records I would want to talk about Or the feet of fines, because these are again very useful generic records of freehold land over time. So certainly after about thirteen hundred, they're a legal fiction to ensure the safe transfer of freehold land by the authority of a civil court. So the purchaser was known as a querent, and the seller the deforciant, and the agreement was secured by fines payable to the court hence the terms final concord or fine. And why is it called the foot of fine? Because it was written out three times, one for each of the parties in the suit, and one for the court, which was always the bit at the bottom, or the foot of the membrane. And that's the one we have. So it would be really a, an attempt to register title and protect it against fraud, since only genuine copies would fit back together in the court. And we have, I think, one example of all three parts. Which is in the museum at the moment. So just how useful are they? Well again they're in Latin and they're very formulaic and as I'll show you in a minute the key section is where you see the word inter abbreviated to INT which is where you start to get the detail of who was involved in the case and some idea of the land. They're a bit abbreviated um, as a lot of our documents are but you can spot these key phrases quer for querent and deforce for deforcient, and they'll help you to identify the names of people in the case. There'll be a very formal description of the property, and it's not really meant as a guide to boundaries or even to land use, and you might get quite a lot of manors grouped together. But because they have such a long coverage, date range, and they go into lists of dwellings and outbuildings, mills, dove cuts, orchards, and the size and variety of land and how it was used, they're amongst the best and most comprehensive records that we have, certainly for the early modern and medieval periods. And the sum mentioned is probably a, a nominal value rather than the actual value. You might have to go to other records for that. So there's two main series from about 1200 up to 1509, in CP25 stroke 1, and then CP25 stroke 2 thereafter. And they run right through into the 19th century. They're arranged by a county and then chronologically. And there is no real index for medieval finds, but many of the early ones have been published and compiled in county record society volumes. So our library catalogue should show you what we hold for each county. And again, after 1509, they're arranged by county, regnal year, and legal term. So a slightly more comprehensive arrangement. We also have um, contemporary calendars almost, called notes to fines, which is a slightly different record, but they can be used to show the order in which the records are bound into the bundles in CP25, 1 and 2. And again, these are on the shelves in the map room, listed by year, legal term, and county. So this is an example Of what they look like you can see the the curved line at the top where the parchment has been cut and again this would fit back together with the other parts and again they're formulaic in their layout so they will start with this is the final concord this is an example from the platinate of Lancaster in Elizabeth I's reign so the date is again regnal but it's it's listed by Saints Day in this case Saint Bartholomew the Apostle in the 11th year of the reign of Elizabeth, Queen of England, etc., all in that first box there, which works out to be the 29th of August, 1569. In this document, the next thing to follow is the list of the justices, which you then will get. And you'll see the word inter, which is there on the right-hand side, in fairly bold writing. So that's the sort of key to know what's coming next. So inter just means between, and then you'll get the names of the parties and which side of the case they were on. Then following is the description of the land, and it looks quite similar to that in the Inquisition post-mortem, the numbers of cottages and chief houses, gardens and orchards, and then acreages of different types of land and where they are, in this case, Ulmswalten. And then the form, the very formulaic form of the the text to, to put the record through the court, And finally, you'll get the statement about how it's remised and quitted and granted to the other parties. And then the fee will reflect the size of the the lands in question and their value. So these can be very useful, if a little difficult to handle. In almost all cases of what we've been talking about this afternoon, records might be here at the National Archives, both of a local, private nature and of a Crown nature, But they could also be duplicated or have additional material in local record offices or in private hands or indeed in all three locations for the same property. And websites like A2A have now made it possible to search electronic catalogues across the country and start to unite different um, collections for the same places. So local history is really taking off now because of the facility of the Internet and the ease with which you can search catalogues. So for that reason, TNA's catalogue is becoming the central holding and inventory of everything we have, and most of the teams in our department are working really hard to put more and more information on the catalogue every day. So it's growing at a phenomenal rate, and we have various teams also converting old finding aids to fill up catalogue details, which at the moment might be listed by dates or simply by counties. So we're doing our best to make this more searchable. The A2A website, as I mentioned, is very useful. And the manorial document register, which James mentioned, again, different counties are being added, and also um, the microfilm copies available in the map room, and the global search from the front page of the website, you you can click on different data sets to search and include in your search on the advanced tab on that. So I think that's all we had to say. This event
0: was recorded live on the twelfth of February two thousand nine at the National Archives, Q. This podcast is copyright of the National Archives, all rights reserved. For more podcasts, please visit nationalarchives.gov.uk forward slash podcasts.